A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Welcome to A Thoughtful Faith Podcast. This is Sarah Collette, and I am very excited to say that I am joined by John DeLynn today. And we're going to be, um, well, I am going to conduct the interview, which is kind of odd <laughs> to sit and interview um, John, but that's the way it's going to go today. And we're really excited that he's here and that he's willing to speak about some of the, the things that are going to come up. And welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. I'm a big fan. Well, <laughs> that is so nice and also very embarrassing. <laughs> um, well, let's see. Should we just jump right in? Let's jump in. Okay. So for me, I um, as I was thinking about this podcast, I really I went back and I listened to all of the podcasts that I could find where you really talk from a personal perspective and spent some good hours with you I didn't even know in the past couple days but um what I really felt um you know how we how we should approach this interview I really felt that we needed to just cover Mormon stories so 2005 on and however you want to contribute to that is we'll just kind of go with that and um the I want to open by asking about as you look back from now from you know today and you you consider that very first podcast you kind of outlined some of the goals that you had for the podcast the direction that you wanted Mormon stories to go in and what you wanted it to be and I think it's probably gone through quite an evolution and you've probably evolved personally with that with the evolution of Mormon stories and so I just want to say uh, or ask, how do you think it's gone? Do you feel like you have, has Mormon Stories achieved what you originally set out to achieve? And, um, and then what is that evolution looked like from your perspective? Hmm. Well, when I, when I originally created my first episode in this very room <laughs> where we're meeting in my house downstairs in my basement, um, you know, I don't know that I fully understood my motives. I I knew that I had suffered a lot of pain trying to figure out some, you know, the difficult aspects of the church. At the time, I had read enough Lowell Bennion and Eugene England and T. Edgar Lyon to have this naive optimism that if those guys could know all the tough stuff and still believe that... Uh, we could figure that out too. So I I do think that there was a big part of me that started Mormon Stories as sort of this way to inoculate thinky Mormons and just say, look, there's tough stuff out there, but let's get it out in the open. And I know that if we just do that and bring on the thoughtful people, that in the end, we'll all be strong, happy, more committed members of the church. Like, I think... I think that was definitely a primary motivation. There's probably, there was probably a part of me that wasn't totally sure that was going to work. So it was a bit of a leap of faith. But I, if I'm being honest, there's probably a part of me that said, and if we're not able to do that, if we're not able to make it work, then that's the way it needs to be too. Because just hiding and not talking about stuff and allowing people to just suffer in silence, that's unacceptable. That can't be the way through this. So I think I've always had, you know how you've seen those movies where there's a, a, a white angel on the right shoulder and a devil on the on the left, yeah. and they're both whispering in the ear? I think throughout this whole process, I've had an angel and a devil 
pulling me in both directions at times saying, nope, we can make this work. This is totally doable. Meaning the church and faith and religion and belief and affiliation with the church. And then another side saying, nope, it's a fraud. It's a lie. It's not true. And, and we need to, you know, uncover the falseness and get real. And those have been two tensions I think I've carried the whole time. Not always consciously, sometimes consciously. There were probably times where my goal was to keep everyone in the church. And there were probably times where I don't say my goal was to lead people out, but I was just angry and kind of wanting to stick it to the man. And if if it led people out of the church, that's the way it was going to be. So, so when you look back, um, when you started out, you kind of you had this lofty goal of making it work. Do, do you do you look back on any time, any one day or experience or time when the direction started to shift, where you did start to feel a little bit more um, angry or more frustrated? Um, how do you? I mean, when you go back, how do you mark mark a shift? Yeah, I was thinking about that, and I was. I have the list of all the episodes of the interviews that I've done, and <clears throat> I think that some, as I was reflecting this morning with Margie, my wife, trying to think about what I'd say, um, I think that I think that another parallel process I've been struggling with is intellectual versus emotional, because I think there have been times where intellectually I came to an understanding or started to figure something out. But but my emotions hadn't caught up with me. So I might say intellectually, I can make the church work. And then, but I hadn't done the emotional work yet. And then that that made it more difficult. Or I'd say, I want to I want to leave the church intellectually. It's just not true. And then emotionally, I hadn't come to grips with what that would really mean emotionally and spiritually to leave. But what happened was in those early interviews, you know, Greg Prince and, you know, um, Greg Kearney, the apologist and uh, um, some of those people, I, uh, John Lynch early on, you know, it was sort of it was sort of just saying, let's take this faithful perspective. And in those early interviews, you can even hear me in that masonry interview with Greg Kearney, where I even just erupted when he gave this answer about how he reconciled masonry with the temple. I'm like, that's it. You gave the answer, you know, and I felt like I was just on this discovery that would ultimately lead everyone, including myself, firmly in. But then I started interviewing people like Todd Compton and, um, you know, Buckley Jepson, the, the gay, the gay man. And then, and then I interviewed Grant Palmer and, <clears throat> I thought that I had an understanding of church history because I had read, you know, five or ten books. But hearing Todd Compton talk in depth about polygamy and polyandry, hearing Grant Palmer really tell his story, that that was shaking to me because I didn't have a full intellectual or emotional understanding of some of these issues. Um, so, so really digging in became more and more unsettling to me. And there was this parallel process again that was happening where people started reaching out to me. Like I, I didn't know whether there'd be a hundred thousand listeners or two in my first year or five years. But what happened was people just immediately started emailing me and 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 driving or flying from far places just to come to Logan to meet wanting to have dinner with me. I'd travel with my MIT job to various countries and cities and everywhere I'd go, someone would want to talk. And people would just, they would tell me, you know, my wife's ready to leave me or I'm addicted to porn and I can't stop or, you know, I have an eating disorder, I'm bulimic, you know, whatever the story was. And I just tapped into this huge reservoir of deep suffering and pain. And that was something that I just, you can't understand that until you've talked to a hundred or a thousand, or in my case, a few thousand people and seeing how much suffering is going on out there within the Mormon context. And it, it became like my, um, my family watched Lord of the Rings recently. 
with my two oldest daughters, and we saw the the Hobbit. And I I think about Frodo carrying this ring, and he carried it around his you know with the chain around his chest. And I don't know if you remember, there's a point where he takes off his shirt, and the the chain and there's scars kind of you know on his chest and around his neck, and wearing wearing that pain and suffering and being exposed to it in such a concentrated form. I mean, I would, anytime I was exercising, I would take a phone call. Anytime I was driving back from the airport, I would take a phone call. Anytime I was on a business trip, lunches and dinners would be scheduled. And it became this huge burden of pain. And, and that made me angry. And there, and, um, so that that informed a lot of how I felt not only about exploration but also my frustration with apologists there was and the church there was just so much pain so if you go from then Grant Palmer you know into uh you know do you remember what year you interviewed Grant Palmer just so we kind of have a time frame I want to say it was around two between two thousand five and two thousand six okay, so it was in the first year yeah and i and I had this deal where I always wanted to be fair. So before I ever agreed to interview Grant Palmer, I wanted to try and interview someone from Fair Farms or or Richard Bushman or whatever. But I no, I couldn't find anyone who would do that. I couldn't find anyone who would talk candidly about Joseph Smith and take my questions. And I asked I asked um, Michael Ash. I asked Daniel Peterson. I went on the I was a member of the Fair list at the time. I went on and I said, hey. And I just couldn't find anyone who was credible, who was articulate and really knowledgeable who would do that. Um, and that was really frustrating. So so anyway, um, I don't know. I'm kind of rambling. but Well, no, I, I, I really love I love the point that you make about um, the fact that people's pain made you angry. Did those people that were seeking you out, did they generally... Um, feel like they wanted to leave the church? Were most of them in that mode or were some of them really struggling to stay or were they all across the spectrum in terms of their attitudes towards the church? It, it was all over the spectrum. I remember bringing some people to my home that were really angry and into some really uh, alternative lifestyle types of things. And my kids, you know, I made this guy an omelet and my kids were here and my wife and he was in a really angry, bitter place. And he started talking about some really inappropriate things in front of my kids. And I realized how careful I needed to be about that because these were strangers just coming in. But but no, most people really wanted to make it work or they wouldn't have bothered. And so they came to me like right in the thick of it, suicidal or marriage was on the precipice of divorce or they, you know, didn't know. Knew that they, they knew they were about to pop. They knew they needed to talk to their bishop or stake president, but they didn't know how. And most of them just wanted to know how do I tell my wife? How do I tell the bishop? How do you make this work? It was always with the intent of trying to work through it in a constructive way. So you mentioned um, your family being very present <clears throat> in terms of all of these people that were coming into your life. Did you? Were you always open with your bishop and your stake president, like from the beginning? Did they know you were doing this? Was this something that you started? You know, did you hide it, basically, is what I'm asking at the beginning? Or were you always open? When I first started the podcast, I was teaching Elders Quorum here in Logan. And um, I had started introducing difficult topics into my Elders Quorum lessons. And a third of the quorum loved it, a third of them slept, and a third of them really hated it. Um... And that and that landed me kind of in the bishop's office because some people complained. And um, it's really funny. My first bishop, I just said, I'm, I'm, I'm in a world of hurt and I'm having all these problems and I'd love to talk to someone about it. But I'll be honest with you, this is difficult stuff and I don't want to damage your testimony. And my first bishop just said, you know what, John, to be honest, I'd rather not know. And what? so wow. we just had this agreement where we wouldn't talk about it. And he didn't do it from a, he was a really sweet man. He's still in our ward. He just knew his limits and didn't really want to go there. So that was that bishop. I didn't, I didn't talk, start talking to my state president until last year. But the thing is, he kept me in elders quorum as an elders quorum instructor. I did that calling three years 
and eventually asked to be released, but he didn't want to know. So did your wife know, and how did she feel about it as you started the podcast? And especially, how did she feel about you bringing all of these people into your world and into your life? Well, this person that I brought in um, early on really didn't mix well with the family, and that left a bad taste in Margie's mouth for, for me bringing people into the home and to the kids. And so... She she kind of quickly early on said, you know, when you do this, I think you need to take it elsewhere because I don't want this disturbing the kids. I don't want this to be what our family is defined by. The emotions and the and the feelings are kind of disruptive. Have and, you have you been able to maintain that? Well, we we've, we've been through cycles. There've been I did that for a while and then when we started having our crisis together, we made some friends and, and, and through Mormon stories that became really good friends during times when we were in and out of the church. And and then it kind of got old. And so I took it out of the family again for a while. And that ended up being really not good. And so now we, we Margie and I kind of tried to do everything together. So you just re- just barely mentioned that you started your crisis together. Will you describe that? What I mean, was she always on board with everything that you were thinking and doing? Or was there a time where she really kind of decided to address certain issues? It started back in Seattle when I when I was a seminary teacher and I started reading all these books. And at some point after Fawn Brody and other things, Michael Quinn, I just turned to her and said, I don't think it was just one evening. Kids were in bed. I just said, I, I, I'm not sure the church is what it claims to be. It was really hard to get those words out of my mouth. And she immediately started crying. And um, and then she did this really powerful thing, which was she just kind of pulled it together. And she said, well, I trust you. So whatever you want to do, I'll, I'll be supportive as best as I can. So I, I wasn't ready to leave the church at that point. So I just stayed in, but was in turmoil for two to five years and I had her read rough I had her read no man knows my history and some of the other books and she immediately understood what my concerns were so there was never this why do you have to read these negative things it was always like well I want to understand oh I get it okay now what do we do about it so so as long as I was staying in the church she was willing to stay when I was becoming so unsettled and angry and frustrated at church, the last thing she wanted was for her and the kids to keep going to church and for them to start looking at me as bad or broken. And so she she wanted to keep the family together. So when I kind of went inactive the first time, she decided to go with me. And so we kind of all went inactive as a family together that first time. So give me a year <clears throat> for your inactivity in terms of like 2005. When did you stop? I think I, you know, I'm fuzzy on years and I ask people years all the time, but I think it was kind of 2006 to 2007 where we were kind of went inactive. Okay. Um, yeah, it, it was before kind of before the stale DS thing and before the Richard Bushman thing. And um, that's how my memory remembers it. That okay. was the first time. Okay. Kind of three, kind of three years here, two or three years into our time here in Logan. Okay. So as we were developing this podcast, you mentioned as a marker um, 2007, and the way that you described it is um, a slow decline. Can you start to elaborate on what you meant by 2007, a slow decline? Well, yeah. The, the the decline was sort of from my mission to to two thousand six in the sense that I had the awful mission experience, but then I, you know, came to BYU and was able to hold on and get married in the temple, but then I was never f- fully feeling comfortable with the church that whole time from from nineteen ninety three until I was teaching seminary, and then when I moved here and and started meeting. You know, again, Grant Palmer and Todd Compton and the Toscanos 
and then getting plugged in all this pain. It was just 2005, 2006, kind of this decline. And would you say that, it, that when you when you're using the word, word decline, you're thinking in terms of like um, intellectual connection to the doctrine of the church, or were, are you actually thinking in terms of like spirituality? I mean, is there a connection between the two for you? Yeah, well, that's that's one of the main things I've learned. But I was mostly engaging purely intellectually. I I had disconnected emotionally in many ways and spiritually. And I had just said, what matters is figuring out in my brain. And I just need to know whether it's true or false. You know, whether it's a fraud or whether the church is what it claims to be. And emotions and spirit need to be put on hold until I, I can think it through. And that didn't turn out good for me. There were all sorts of problems with that. But that's what I was doing. And so if I didn't neglect the spirit or neglect people or relationships or my own inner work or process, none of that mattered. And so that kind of, for me, looking back, made it in many ways a flawed endeavor um, in terms of how I handled it. So you weren't aware of that at the time? No. That is all um, introspective, reflecting no, I, now. I felt like God was was inspiring me to do this. And I, I, I can't even say that he wasn't, but I, I felt led to do this. I felt compelled to do this. And it was emotionally rewarding. Part of the, the other part of that ring that I, that I reflect on when I think about Frodo's ring is how uh, gratifying it was to have all these people tell me I was important, to have all these people tell me I was helping them, to have all these people say, you saved my marriage, you saved my life. Thank you so much. That becomes something for your ego. It becomes, it's feeding. It makes you feel powerful. It makes you feel needed. It makes you feel important. <clears throat> um, and so in, in ways it feeds you emotionally and even spiritually. But I hadn't done the soul work to be in a really solid emotional place to handle that well. You know, yeah, I wasn't like Frodo. I wasn't humble and meek and peaceful. I was disturbed inside. And so I was carrying the ring as a, as a really traumatized, inadequate, prideful, egotistical person. I, that is so surprising to hear. I would never have guessed that you're you were feeling or that you were really kind of experiencing life through the prideful side of the lens because I always felt like you did a good job of staying neutral which is which is relatively rare because of all the podcasts I listen to it is really hard to hear a neutral voice did you really I mean did you fight for that is that a personality trait did that come easy to you yeah I was I just decided from the very beginning that effectiveness was going to be my my religion as far as the podcast goes. Whatever I did, I wanted to be maximally effective and have the biggest reach. And I knew for the, the reason I got into it was because we had the, you know, there were several podcasts that already were existing at the time. There was the churchesnottrue.com. There was this one called Catholic... Mormon or something, you know, there were there were a few anti-Mormon podcasts that were in existence. And then there were, was the apologetic side. They weren't doing podcasts, but they were, you know, doing what they do. There was nobody in the middle trying to do a balance. So I didn't want to do something that was already being done. And most importantly, I really believed that people should be able to make their own decisions. And so I just had this relentless commitment to neutrality and objectivity because that was the space that I felt like Mormonism needed most. And dialogue was kind of missing in action. I felt like Sunstone was missing in action. And so I, I never wanted to lose that. Now, looking back, there have been times where I absolutely lost that, especially last year, interviewing um, Brent Gardner and uh, Terrell Gibbons a little bit and... Um, Charles, Charles uh, Haley, Charles Harrell. And, and when I interviewed um, Grant Palmer for the second time, 
I was just angry by that time and not doing a very good job at hiding it. But it was hard to be neutral and it was hard. But but I do have that personality. I think when my parents got divorced, I, I think I assumed the role of the peacemaker in the home. And when my siblings would fight or my parents would fight, I would always be the one to try and heal and make it better and to help each side see each other's point of view. So I do think I have a bit of that pleaser, peacemaker kind of personality that maybe helped a little bit. But some would say I haven't been objective at all. So (laughs) I guess it's a matter of perspective. Yeah. So let me ask about, um, did anyone ever accuse you of, of not being spiritually in tune? I mean, did anyone ever come to you and say, wow, you know, you're, you seem to be prideful or you seem to, you know what I mean? That the same, the sins that are associated with questioning, were you accused of that? Or did you kind of escape that? Well, the pride thing is something I look back on now. At the time, I never felt prideful. I felt like I was being humble. I felt like I was just doing God's will, you know, and helping people. So I guess I have to admit that the looking back, the pride thing and the lack of spiritual thing is something that I'm kind of reading back into my history a bit. I think that for sure, even before the podcast started, once I became enveloped by these difficult questions, Margie always felt like there was kind of a cloud over me, like the light in my eyes had kind of gone out and like I was always in my head and always stewing. And even though I can pull out congeniality and warmness and friendliness, you know, as as like a cloak I put on, um, I, I've I've been in a dark place in my soul for probably twenty years, but but Margie saw it and the kids saw it. I tried to hide it, but it definitely was there in my family and my 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 siblings, my brother, my sisters. They saw it. My mom and dad saw it. Um, so yeah, family saw it. That's right. And I and every time they told me, I ignored it. I just said. This is important. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm helping people. There's all these people in need. So I was just, it was like I just had plugs in my ears because I knew that this was what I needed to do. And all these people suffering, I got to carry that ring. I'm surprised to hear you say, to reflect backwards and hear you say that, you know, when I, I would not have guessed that. Let me, let me um, just kind of step aside here and ask on a side note. A lot of people that go through the questioning process at some point deal with the question, is there a God at all? And a lot of people come to the conclusion that there is no God. They face, they face atheism and they embrace it or they decide that, you know, fundamentally they have the God gene or they, they crave God despite that question. When did that, did that ever occur to you? And when did you really face that question? Yeah, it, it was around... It was it was after I had been away. I don't know that I totally have the years right, but let's just say from 2006 to 2007, I had kind of stopped Mormon stories for a while and then gone inactive. And and part of the reason I stopped Mormon stories was because I didn't want to take people out of the church and I was worried that I couldn't be objective. And so I kind of stopped the podcast for a while, not wanting to lead people out of the church. And then I, I got this resurgence of optimism about it, came back, and that's when I think... If the date's right, that's when I interviewed Richard Bushman. And the Richard Bushman interview was really interesting. The way I got to interview him was his nephew, was a, his great, great nephew was a listener. His name's Casey Kern. He's at MIT right now. And he just said, John, I love your podcast. Is there anything I can do to help? I'm, I happen to be Richard Bushman's great nephew. And I said, yeah, I'd love to get your, your uncle to be on the podcast. And I, I'm pretty sure I had tried and he had said no previously. And so Casey went to bat for me and told his uncle to do it. And uh, I originally agreed with, with Richard to do 10 episodes, 10, 10 topics, right? And I listed the 10 and I listed all the questions and we had done all this work. And he ended up asking to terminate the interviews after I had asked three questions. And that was, a, that was really a bothered me, you know, and I didn't want to embarrass him. So I didn't make a big deal about that. And I don't blame him now because I think 
he gave me so much time. He gave me three or four or five hours. And for him, that was a lot of time. He was writing Rough Stone Rolling or had just finished it. So it was really nice that he had done that. And now looking back, I'm grateful. But at the time, it really bothered me. And uh, and that, that wasn't something that caused me to lose my faith. But it, it was really disturbing because he said, I, I just got the sense that he was kind of bothered that the questions that I was asking him in the context I was asking that was so so difficult um, or I was coming from such a framework that was hostile and questioning that he didn't know how to answer in a satisfactory way. And, and yeah, so I, this was, this was during the time I was working at MIT and, um, and my faith started to unravel completely. And I do remember a day where I was sitting in my hotel room and I just said to myself, I'm not sure there's a God and and I'm not sure that there's anybody watching me. I'm not sure that there's any absolute standard for morality. I'm not sure there's an afterlife. And if that's the case, I wonder, I started questioning what was right and wrong. I started questioning my decision to have gotten married when I did. I started questioning my decision to marry Margie. It was weird how all these dominoes just fell. It was just like Joseph Smith fell, and then Jesus, and then God, and then it went straight to marriage. And and yeah, yeah, I just, there, there was a time for several, probably a couple of years, where I just, I felt like there probably wasn't a God. And, and that probably led up, up through my interview with John and Zilpha Larson, um, probably as recent as last year. And that was a, that was pretty dark times. So during now that we've established that, I I was gonna use the the interview with um, with the Larsons as kind of a marker. I listened to it just last night to refresh my my memory of it, and um, you were fully deconstructed at that point. I mean, yeah. and it, it really comes across in the interview that. <clears throat> I mean, you had kind of deconstructed all faith and spiritual experience to maybe chemicals in the brain and hormones and, you know, who knows what, and that there was a possibility of a spiritual, you know, like a God or a deity and a spiritual experience, but you were pretty deconstructed. I want to go back and ask, now that we've addressed that point, we'll come back to it. There must have been lots of things. I know you've talked a little bit about um, you were investigated by your state president at the time, during sometime during the past, those previous years. Can you talk about some of those things that were going on, how, how they affected you personally? And Yeah. Yeah. So by, I don't, again, I don't know the dates for sure, but I want to say by 2009, by 2008, 2009, and definitely 2010, I was... Uh, my belief had pretty much unraveled. And I was pretty much, I had pretty much decided to leave the church completely. And after Stale the S and after activating the family again and getting everyone back in a couple, a year or two after that, I went inactive again. And, um, and that's when I, yeah, I was in this dark place and, um, so what happened was um, this gentleman reached out to me who had who, who had been in general authority. So there's the, a member of like the third quorum of the 70. He, he lives in Europe and he had been a general authority for five years. And he reached out to me and said, hey, John, I'm, you know, I'm having doubts and I'm struggling in my country here in Western Europe is there are a lot of people here in the country that are having problems too. And we actually had a general authority come out and try and stage an emergency intervention because, um, uh, because so many people are losing their faith over historical issues. And when the general authority came out, he probably offended more people than he helped in these little firesides that he held. And I started um, realizing that this was going to become a really big deal, you know, across Mormonism. And so, um, 
And so I have another friend that that knew this general authority while he was serving a mission in this country. And and we just got the idea. Let's, you know. Let's let's put together a survey of all the disaffected Mormons we can find and find out what's causing them to leave and how painful it is for them to leave. And I, w- I want to say that that we did this in late 2010 and then in 2011. That's that's what my that's what my memory. I think you're me. right because yeah. I was actually part of the group <clears throat> yeah. when you did that, and I yeah. joined at the beginning of 2011. So yeah, and and the sense we got was that the church was nervous that this former general authority was going to come clean, and and we saw it as an opportunity to have a dialogue. And so we we put this we so that this this former general authority said, John, I want to meet you in New York City. I want you to interview me for the podcast and I want you to put together a presentation. Um, And I'm going to invite one of the general authorities that I used to know, who's still a general authority. And we're going to have a meeting and you're going to present to the general authority. And um, and we're going to. We're going to start addressing this issue at the highest levels. Wow! Did were you intimidated at all, or were you just excited? I was stoked. I was just. This is just. This is just what I was waiting for. Now I should. I should add that. Prior to this time, my brother had been working at church headquarters as the chief information officer, and he worked regularly with the first presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve for like five six years. He was the church's number one computer guy head of all the systems, all the website. He was even over, as I understand it, you know, all the multimedia, general conference kind of stuff. I don't know exactly what he was over, but he was CIO, Chief Information Officer. And he just came to me one day and he said, hey, would you want to meet an apostle? And I was like, oh. And to be honest, this was in my dark time. And, uh, you know, immediately my, my thoughts went to the Wizard of Oz. And I was like, you know, do I want us? Do I want to meet the wizard and look and peek behind the curtain? Right. And there was a big part of me that didn't want to because, even though intellectually I had sort of concluded for myself that the church wasn't what it claims to be, I didn't emotionally. I think I was avoiding having to emotionally feel that because it's different to feel it, and when you sit with that apostle. And you ask him to answer the hard questions, and he can't come up. And this is what I was fantasizing. I'd think, okay, so what am I going to do? I'll ask him about the Kinderhook plates, and I'll ask him about DNA, and I'll ask him about polyandry. Is he going to have any good answers? There are no good answers. So then I'm going to ask him all these questions. It'll be awkward. I'll embarrass him. My brother will regret that I ever invited, that he ever invited me, and it'll just be a disaster. And I'll leave having looked behind the curtain and knew that everything was a fraud. And it'll just be sad and awful. So I I think I first said no. I kind of just, I don't know what I'd ask him. I don't know what the point would be. But finally I said I would. And and I thought really hard about what question do you ask an apostle if you've got an hour and a half? Can I just ask, what was your brother's motivation? Why was he anxious to get you set up with an apostle? Because the particular apostle that he chose is just from from Joel's perspective was just all about love and openness and inclusivity and i think he felt like if i had exposure to that apostle i would be motivated and inspired to stick with things and to maybe see things from a different perspective okay yeah so i agreed to meet with him and and we met for an hour and a half in a private little dining area in the Joseph Smith Memorial Building and we talked about some amazing things. He was incredibly candid with me. I mentioned my mission experience in Guatemala with the, you know, kitty baptisms. And he talked all about, uh, you know, Chile and all the problems that had happened in, in Chile where they had to close 30 stakes and how awful it was for church headquarters to have all these baptisms that were kind of invalid and how hard they work to teach good principles to the mission presidents, but that in some cases kind of the mid-level managers would get their own agendas and and how difficult it was for him to 
for them as the brethren to empower these people spiritually to trust them. And yet, you know, because you empower them, you can't always control what they do and you can't always supervise everything. But just how much of a catastrophe that was for the church. And it happened in the Philippines. And he was he was really being honest with me. And I'm like, do you know who I am? You know, do you know what I do? But he didn't didn't hold back. And he and then we talked about, um, you know, homosexuality and same sex attraction he was totally compassionate about that. He was completely loving. And he said the church needs to get out of the business of claiming whether it's biological or not, or whether it's a choice or not, and retreat just to the theological grounds. Because, you know, the word the words he said was the last thing we want in the church is another Copernican or a Galilean moment. And what I thought, what I figured he meant by that was, um, we don't want to say the the sun revolves around the earth like the catholic church did to then have to eat crow and and change its position but that wasn't it he also showed deep love and concern and sophistication about um these issues and so that was really and 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 then the final thing i i asked him i just had one real question and i just said and i just decided i was going to make this list of like all the issues i had ever struggled with and so i said look I'm representing a large group of people who have really struggled on a number of issues. Multiple versions of the first vision. You know, Book of Abraham, Peepstones, Polyandry, you know, I, I, DNA in the book. And I tried to list like every possible. And I was like looking at him to see if he'd flinch or like act surprised. You know, he didn't flinch at all. And then I just said, but my question is, we want to figure out a way to stay. We want to stay in the church, but we don't know if we're wanted. And we don't know, we don't know how to stay in the church and be authentic. And so that was the question I asked him. I had one question. I said, "Do you want us in the church, or not?" And man, I I, I almost felt like he like lifted himself off the chair, like rose from the chair like three inches, and he said, "If the church is a tent, this is how I'm remembering it. If the church is a tent, he said, I don't care." If you're in the farthest corner of the tent, as far in the backside of the tent as possible, I don't even care if your backside is is halfway out of the tent. And he kind of like put his, you know, I remember him kind of, we want you in this church, you know. And, um, he, you know, and he said, I'm not going to lie to you. You know, if you throw if you throw a stone into the pond, the ripples are closest at the center. And he said, I, I think that you'll get the most fulfillment and joy and happiness in your life if you're living the gospel fully and believing it fully. But if you're on the periphery and you can't believe it fully, there's still a place for you here. All we ask, he said, all we ask is that if you have issues with the church that you don't uh, purchase a printing press. Those were that's the I remember him using kind of that metaphor. Wow. Like don't go out and buy a printing press and publicize to the world your problems can you just kind of work those out and not disrupt other people's experiences he wasn't being deceitful or he was saying be respectful and sensitive to others the second thing he said was he said all we ask is that you if you if and now we kind of switched the tent motor metaphor he said if you and your family live in a tent all we ask is that you point the flap of your tent in the direction of the prophet and keep the flaps open. Not that you necessarily believe and obey everything, but that you'll you'll look to us for and listen and be open to the guidance and the feedback we give. If you're willing to be open to that and to, you know, to do your best not to disrupt everybody, we want you in this church. And I just, I left that, I left that, um, engagement just so excited because I could tell he knew all the hard issues he was sophisticated about him and he said we want you so that was really invigorating for me do you look back on it I know this is such a classic Mormon question but I think a lot of people will want to know did you feel the spirit quote-unquote while yeah, he was speaking totally he was I mean there was there was charisma there for sure there was charm, wit, and sharp intellect, for sure. 
But yeah, good man, loving, caring man, for sure. And spiritual man, you know? And I think at the time, again, I wasn't into spiritual stuff because I just, it had all got distorted. But absolutely. So you did, when he said that you, um, that they, he wanted you to turn your tent towards the prophet. Did you experience cognitive dissonance when, when he was saying that? Or did you feel like you were on board with what he was saying? At the no, time? I, I left feeling on board. I'm like, okay. oh, we can do this. Yeah. We can do this. And um, well, what was hard about that was a few months later, he gave a general conference talk that was devastating. It was just, it was pounding the pulpit. It was addressing some of the core issues that caused many to leave. And it was like a different person. It was like that person that I had lunch with is not the person who just gave that talk. That talk was completely invalidating. That talk showed a lot of insensitivity to the issues that we're facing. And it really confused me. It really discouraged me because I thought I thought he was going to be giving the other talk. Like I had this lunch with this guy who represents a lot of people who are in pain and I want you to know that we love you and we want you in this church and that's the talk I thought he was going to be giving but that's not the talk he gave he gave the talk that was kind of re-entrenching the literalistic position and so that was really difficult for me is it still difficult for you well I got to have a second lunch with him oh so I had that second lunch and to be honest it was kind of just informal and rambly for the, for the first hour, hour and a half. But before we go to that second lunch, can you set up how it came to be that you're sitting down again with this same general authority? Was it another, your brother set it up, or how did it happen? The first time, as I understand it, Joel invited me to general conference and wanted to introduce me to this apostle backstage. And for some reason, the apostle couldn't do it. So I went to general conference, but I didn't meet the apostle. And I never knew that. But later the apostle said to Joel, Hey, I never got to meet your brother. Why don't we, why don't we have lunch? So the first one, th- that's how, that's how it happened. The second one, I think he, he just said to my brother, how's, 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 how's Johnny doing? How's big John? He called me big John. How's, how's big John doing? And, and Joel's like, fine. And he's like, why don't we do a lunch? You know? And I should say, I didn't tell you this. In both the lunches, in the middle of the lunch, he like halted me and he said, I want you to know I'm grateful for what you're doing. Both wow. of the lunches, I, I appreciate it. You're doing an important thing. One of the lunches, he even kind of backslapped us both and said, I wish the church had 100,000 John and Joel DeLins. You know, just very, very complimentary and warm and affirming. Never was there any... This is after Grant Palmer. This is after all that, the Toscanos. Never was there any, like, you need to be careful or what you're doing is dangerous. And my brother cautioned me not to read too much into that because he's a busy man. And Joel's feeling was he probably didn't know a lot about what I was doing or the details. Okay. But he did say that on both occasions, which to me, my old early believing self was like, well, if an apostle says that, I must be doing something good or he wouldn't feel inspired to say that, you know? And so anyway, yeah. So that second lunch, was there a question you had about? Between oh no, okay. I just, okay. I just wanted to know yeah. how it, yeah. it came about. I think he requested the second lunch. And and, and how far, how much time? I want to say a year apart. Okay. Not totally sure on that. But the second lunch, I just, I, I was trying to think of a new question to ask. And I didn't want to say, why would you give that awful talk? Right? <laughs> right. So I kind of hinted around that. And I said, you know, sometimes we can make enemies the way that we choose our rhetoric, you know. But I I don't even know that he knew I was talking about his talk. But I was. there were points where I was trying to say, I could help you guys. Like, I don't know who benefited from that, you know. Because the believers already believed. And now all the people who are struggling are just angrier. So who have you helped? You know, but I, I wasn't that candid. I didn't want to embarrass him or my brother. So the question that I got out was, I'm seeing all these marriages fall apart because of the church where one believes and one doesn't. And then the believer says, kicks the unbeliever out. 
we're dividing families. The church is supposed to be about families. We're dividing them. This is a huge problem, and it's ripping children, families apart. And can we do something about it, you know? And he he felt, he, he cared, but I could tell, I got some insight into how difficult it is to be an apostle because the feedback I got was you can't tell people what to do in their marriages. You can't tell a believing spouse to stay with a disbelieving spouse. It's not that easy. As soon as you tell people what to do, then they hold you liable and you're a prophet or, or you know, prophets are in revelator. So, you know, I got a bit of a sense in how complicated that job is because what if the spouse is abusive or ends up being an abusive, but, you know, he had made some declaration, don't leave your spouse, you know. So the, I got the sense that they just can't, it's not that simple to just make these blanket declarations that everyone's supposed to follow. And and I was kind of disappointed by that. Um, but looking back, you know, he's a thoughtful man trying to do his best and he knows what what is useful and what isn't. And But I left very disappointed because I, what I wanted to hear him say is, yes, my next general conference talk, I will give a talk and tell believing spouses to love and support and affirm their non-believing spouses. And, you know, that didn't happen. Right. <laughs> and that was our last communication. We haven't communicated since then. So so I, I tell you that story because um, I, but I still felt like he liked what I was doing and supported it. And so when this other general authority reaches out to me and wants to arrange this thing in New York, so we do. We put out this survey, like 3,000 people, you know, complete it. I get like five PhDs to all help me crunch the data and do all the statistical analysis. And then I got disinvited from the meeting. So the meeting happened. The, the former general authority met with the general authority and a couple other people that you would know, but I'm not going to name names. And... Um, they had the meeting. Now, why were you disinvited? Are you willing to say, or do you know? Um, I think that I was viewed as dangerous. I think that I was viewed as someone who can communicate with a lot of people. Can they trust me? Can they be candid? And to be honest, this was the first time the former general authority had met with the current general authority, and they probably had things to share that I didn't need to be listening to or reporting on the side. I mean, it... It makes sense. And I hadn't, you know, I think I think what, what, what any organization or marriage values most is loyalty. And I hadn't shown unquestioning loyalty. And so to be at a meeting at that high level, I just hadn't managed my political capital in a way to where they would want to trust me, frankly. Because I was, at the time, it was if I had my loyalties, it's with the people who are struggling. And I'll go down with them before I stand up for a bureaucratic, authoritarian, disingenuous church. If I have to pick, I don't want to pick, but if I have to, I'm going with them, not you, you know. And I think that's how I was feeling. I think they sensed it and I got disinvited. So they so they took all my analysis and all my data and all this stuff and, and it was presented to the general authority. And the feedback was is that the general authority was just like his jaw was on the table because of the high education levels of the people who are leaving, because of the high, you know, the disproportionate high levels of church service that these people, these were huge percentage had served in bishoprics. There were a number of stake presidents, um, former mission presidents, and again, one general authority. And then all these really return missionary, active, devout people. It was almost as if the disaffected were the most devout in their church lives before they became disaffected and they were highly educated and very very affluent on average and i think all that i don't think the issues like you know peep stones or kinderhook plates were troubling to this general authority but but the demographics and the severity and the amount of pain absolutely i think left its mark so who do you think he thought was leaving the church? I don't know, because I wasn't there. But I, I think he probably thought it was just the average church member or, you know, maybe the less committed. You know, he's highly educated and he worked with a lot of highly educated people. So I don't think he associated intellect and study with disaffection. And okay. I definitely don't think he 
And I think there's a lot of wealthy people, Osmonds, Steve Young, Stephen Covey, Marriott's, you know, lots of really wealthy, successful, educated people are very well, the Huntsman's well entrenched in the church. So so maybe he was assuming that it were that it was people that had not necessarily been as active and yeah. as faithful. Okay, I see what you're saying. And as educated and as affluent. I think okay. that all came together. Later, I I can tell you, but I mean, I can't tell you much about the meeting that I ended up having with this other general authority. But the words that came out of his mouth were best and brightest. Are leaving. And he had tears in his eyes when he said it. So I'm because you weren't there. Um, I'm sure that all the information you got from the meeting was just reported to you. But yeah. was the impression of the general authority positive? Did people walk away from that meeting feeling like it? he was affected in the totally. right way? Totally. Okay. And this is a general authority who is just love. He is just empathy and love. Um, very beloved. And so, yeah, in fact, we were set to go to Peggy Fletcher Stack or the Salt Lake Tribune with the results of the survey Immediately, It was like, we will wait until this meeting and then we're going to release. And he immediately said, please don't publish these results because I want to bring them to Salt Lake City and I want to present them to the brethren. And if you go public with this, it'll be like when we almost had an apology on the blacks, you know, five, ten years ago. And then it got leaked to the press and the brethren scuttled it because they never want to look like they're reacting to pressure because that. You know, I, I don't want to sound cynical about that, but it, I don't think they ever want to appear like they're just caving to public pressure or... Did he actually express that to you or is that you imprinting what you think? Well, I, I only know what was reported to me through the people that were there. Okay. But what was expressed was this will be more impactful with the brethren if it isn't made public beforehand. Okay. So we sat on the results of that survey for months and months and months. And I was, and I was, to be honest, this is where the ring, you know, how when, when, when Sam asked for the ring back from Frodo, he got angry and a little bit violent. This is where the ego starts popping in. I was hurt that I couldn't be at that meeting. I was hurt that I was disinvited. I was hurt that all the work that I had done was being presented, but I couldn't come to the presentation. And then I was hurt that they were going to go have this important conversation in Salt Lake City and that I wasn't going to be invited to that either. And it was pride. It was prideful. I'm I'm, I'm embarrassed, but I, I was. I was angry, and I started getting really impatient. And I wanted to make this big splash, you know, like, oh, well, we're going to, we're going to hit the church hard with this news, and it's going to send a shockwave. And that was kind of my mode. It was just anger and bitterness and frustration and shock. It reminds me of when I asked Margaret Toscano why the September 6th were so strident. And she, I don't know if you remember the interview, but she said, if, you sit, if you're if you a kid sitting in the back seat and you're burning up and it's hot and you say, hey, mom and dad, can you roll down the windows or turn on the air conditioner? And they don't hear you. And then you talk a little bit louder and they don't hear you. And then you talk a lot louder and they still don't hear you. At some point you're going to scream because you're burning up and they're not listening. And the only way to get their attention is to scream. And carrying that ring, carrying everybody's pain, thinking that I was important, thinking that I had this mission on the earth to save everybody. Um, you know, I started getting really angry and impatient. And so eventually it was it was around the turn of the year. And I'm thinking this is 2011. I just I sent a message to these people and I said, tell them I'm going to go public with the data because I'm sick of waiting. You said it would be like a month. It's been like four. Like I'm sick of waiting. And just out of the blue, this general authority said, can we meet for lunch? The same general authority that had been in the meeting? Yeah. Okay. Yep. And so he came to Logan. Just, you know, I don't know if he had other engagements, but he came and we had lunch for two hours. And um, and it was amazing. It was 40 times more rewarding than my my meeting with the apostle because the apostle talked for most of the time. And he was awesome. But this this general authority just asked a thousand questions. He asked so many questions, I was uncomfortable. You know, I was just like, uh, why are you asking me all these questions? You know, what what are you trying to find out? You know, he asked me about the Mormon stories communities. He asked me about 
what my goals were with Mormon Stories. He asked about the podcast, how many people were listening. He asked how it's affected my family. He asked what I've learned from the people who have been struggling. He even said, if you, if, if you, I'll be meeting with the brethren next week. If you had three things you wanted to communicate to them, what would you want to say? Like, I was just, it was almost stunning to me. I don't think I said anything intelligent because I was so flabbergasted by his love. He cried like three times in the interview. He was sincere. He cared. It was amazing. So when you went into the lunch, you were talking about you were coming from kind of this place of frustration and anger. Did you go into that lunch with that same anger? Did you prepare yourself? Totally. I was totally. But I, I put on... I put on the congeniality like I had learned to do. And I put on the diplomacy because effectiveness was my goal. And I tried to find ways to engage constructively. And this was like a moment of leverage or power. And I, but I didn't want to blow it and be strident. So I, I tried really hard to be civil and diplomatic and loving and compassionate. And, and I don't want to say that that's all fake for me. But again, I, I've been... All along, I've been dealing with the devil and the angel, not knowing who to listen to at different times, wanting to listen to both. And by that time, I was just really angry. And I was angry that I'd been cut out of the process. And But it was I was really positive and constructive. And I left again the meeting. He said, you know, he left the meeting saying, I, I don't know if there's anything I can do, but I'll try. And, and then uh, within a, a small amount of time, he ended up calling together some of the most important people in places that can make influence in the church. And the data was presented at church headquarters to these people. Wow. And how do you know? Because the people who were in the meeting previously, previously, some of them got to go to the meeting at, at church headquarters. Then did you release the information after that happened? He asked me to keep it a little bit longer. And I just, again, my prideful self, I lost patience and I released it after he had asked me to hold on to it longer. And I I regret that. And nobody really cared. (laughs) (laughs) Really, nobody cared. Like, why did I do that? Why didn't I just let that process unfold? But I just was angry. So, So that's what led up to the UVU presentation that I that I gave, um, I think that was in 2012, but I'm early 2012, but I'm... Was it before or after John and the Larson interview? Uh, I think the Larson interview would have come after. Yeah, so it was 2011, because you did the interview in yeah. January of 2012. Okay, that's probably right. Yeah. Yeah, so, so yeah, um... So I released the data, and then we crunched it some more, and then I presented the results of that data at that UVU conference with... uh... Right. And this is where the whole Daniel Peterson thing comes in. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. Daily I'm constrained to
Thank you.